The Pre-Paces podcast is brought to you by two brilliant sponsors. Paces Ahead is a fantastic four-day face-to-face paces course run in Brentford, London. They bring you a whole host of patients with fascinating stories and reliable signs, and these patients are absolutely delighted to allow you to hone your exam skills prior to exam day. Some of the patients actually are used in the exams themselves. And the next courses are running from the 20th to the 23rd of May. And then I will be helping out on the course running on the 28th to the 31st of May. Please do come and say hello. I'd love to have a chat and hopefully help you on your way to passing your paces. But if you can't make the course for whatever reason, our other sponsor, Pass Test, has got you covered with their market-leading online revision resource. There are tons of videos which help you revise from the comfort of your own home. And most listeners that I've spoken to have said this is equally essential for your Pacer's success. But that's enough for me for now. Let's get into this week's episode of the Pre-Pacer's Podcast. Welcome to the Pre-Paces Podcast with me, Dr. Sam Williams. First of all, a massive congratulations to those of you who have recently found out you've successfully gained a registrar training number in whatever specialty you are pursuing. And with this in mind, we're covering a topic today which was suggested to me by one of my colleagues working towards the end of their IMT3 training. Understandably, those of you who are approaching the start of a registrar post may have some trepidation about taking on the prestigious role as the medical reg on call. Well, worry no more, dear listeners. This episode will, hopefully, give you some helpful tips and advice that I've reflected on over my first nine months of being the med reg. And I'll be joined once again for her third appearance on the show by Dr. Jenny Goff, who starts off by giving us her reflections on being part of the first cohort to complete the IMT3 training program before we discuss the advice we would have wanted to receive before our first shifts as the MedReg on call. But without further ado, let's get into the show. Welcome to the Pre-Paces podcast. This week we're doing something slightly different away from Paces, but hopefully something which is still going to be relevant for you uh, if you are in internal medical training, if you're a foundation doctor, or if you're basically anyone who has to work on call uh, in a hospital. Having been a medical reg for a grand total of around nine months, and during my time as a core medical trainee, due to COVID, I couldn't act up as the medical reg. The last few months for me have been my first as the medical reg on call, and I'm sure it won't surprise anyone to learn that it's a steep learning curve. So I thought what might be helpful is if every so often I bring you some tidbits of knowledge and advice from both my experience as a medical reg, as well as bringing guests onto the show who have had experience being the medical reg. And because it is the first cohort of doctors to successfully complete the new internal medical training pathway, the new three-year pathway for trainees here in the UK, I have invited someone on the show for her hat-trick appearance. And we are delighted to be joined again by Dr. Jenny Goff. So Jenny, welcome back to the show for your hat-trick appearance. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be back. 
back I've again. I've had lots of people come and make comments on this podcast now. <laughs> Starting to feel a little bit a little bit famous. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jen, one thing I thought is that sort of sporadically through this podcast, I would just sprinkle several episodes with reflections, lessons, uh, learning points from my time as a medical reg, things that I would have wanted to know as uh, starting off as a junior medical reg taking on their first few shifts on call. And so some of the things we're going to talk about today, Jen, are going to be your reflections as a junior doctor who is completing the IM3 training pathway, the three-year training pathway for the first time. We're going to be talking through some of your reflections on how IM3 has been for you, maybe discuss how it differs from my experience during the uh, core medical training. And then we've got a few choice learning points about basically our experiences so far acting as the medical reg on call. So without further ado, let's get into this registrar ramble with Dr. Jenny Goff. Sounds great. So Jen, I guess the thing is for me is that because I I did my core medical training the year before IM3 came in, or that mm-hmm. training program came in. So I was still on the old core medical training program, the old two-year program. So what I've asked you to do for this show is to get two good things, two bad things, and two ugly things to do with IMT training. So why don't you kick us off? Why don't we start with the good news? Yeah, I, I guess I should probably start by saying that I think everybody's experience is probably quite different and it will depend what hospital you go to and what trust you go to and what jobs you do as to how you feel about things and I know even within my trust I have lots of friends who have different good and bad points to me just because of which departments you've worked in etc etc so I guess at good things I would say that the introduction of the intensive care block being compulsory I think is is excellent I certainly learned a lot during my uh, three months there. And I think I know you did a lot of time on intensive care in your core medical training. I think it's just a really important side of medicine to see and very beneficial as a medical registrar now, knowing when and who to refer to intensive care has been absolutely crucial. Yeah, that's a really, really good point. And yeah, Jen, you know uh, that I, I did a lot of intensive care basically because my second rotation of my core medical training was was just prior to the onset of COVID. So I ended up not rotating, doing eight months in intensive care. And I've got to say, I 100% agree. And one thing I would say, which I don't know if you would agree with, is that it it makes you make better decisions as a medical reg and makes you consider your IT referrals with certainly Mm -hmm. a a better perspective of the types of patients who would be suitable and those who wouldn't. Agree. And I think it gives you that often they want you to have a specific question in mind or a specific thing you want them to do. And if you think that through before you refer, you can often a answer their questions before they ask them and b make better decisions for your patients you know some some of the things that you want might want them to do could be done in other areas for example niv or renal replacement therapy um and you when you go to itu and you see the patients there and you realize what they go through it does also i think swing your opinion on who you might have previously maybe referred to them before 
I still feel like after after three months, I had no, no idea what was going on in terms of the intricacies of, of the department. But at least you get a reasonable idea about about what they do and what they can do, and what they can't do. Yeah, I, and I, I get where you're coming from as well, because I reckon by the end of my because we had four month rotations by the end of my fourth month, I was sort of happy with things, but I still really was getting to grips with the system and the the type of typical patient pathway through intensive care and through to you know discharge back to the ward but I still wasn't quite there I still wasn't really 100% on a lot of things and those extra four months meant that by the end I actually felt pretty confident you know managing intensive care overnight and and having that type of confidence in and like you say knowing the specific question that you're asking of the team really helps you make those referrals but I'm sure we'll I think in the works I've got a sort of referring to ITU episode planned and we'll be talking to either an ITU consultant or registrar and diving into that in a lot more detail. So there's your first good thing was the uh, ITU compulsory ICU block. Yeah. And couldn't agree with you more on that one. So what's your next good thing from your IMT training? I was going to talk about my IMT three year, which is this year a little bit, um, which is obviously a completely new because at least IMT1 and IMT2 were broadly similar-ish to the previous Core 1, Core 2 training programme. But this is a new thing and often a little bit confusing thing, but I've actually really enjoyed my IMT3 and I've had a really positive experience. So I wanted to sort of say I was a little bit worried going into it that it might be that you're the SHO on the ward, but the reg on call and you sort of have the worst of each world and it's a bit miserable. But personally, I've found that that hasn't been the case and they've been very supportive in ensuring that I am the reg on the wards as well as on call, which has meant that my experience has been really positive. So I'm timetabled into clinics. I was on the respiratory ward for a little bit. So I did lots of procedures, lots of referrals. And you felt like you were actually part of the team and you weren't just sort of a token extra person that was kind of milling around. At least I did. I, I am aware that there are other people that maybe haven't had that same sort of experience, unfortunately. But um, from my perspective, I, I've really enjoyed that side of things. And I think going forward, it'd be really, really good to have lots of registrars that have done two specialties that in theory they won't do long term because you have that kind of more intricate knowledge of that specialty when you do it as a registrar as opposed to um, an SHO and I for one especially because I did respiratory I feel so much more confident with chest drains and plural procedures that I really wouldn't have felt confident doing anything like that overnight for example so I think it will stand me in good stead going forward even though I don't actually want to do that particular specialty long term. Yeah brilliant and and really good to hear about you know your positive experiences and but one thing I think has come to light is that the role or the perspective of the IM3 year, the variability of that post between trusts is is quite large. Great. So we've got both of your good things, compulsory ITU blocks, and the fact that you weren't just a token body on the ward, that you were actually treated as a as a real registrar, opportunities to perform clinical activities typical of a registrar, things like clinics, advanced procedures. So that's really good. However, there's two sides to every coin. So one of the things I asked you was to think of some of the worst things or bad things to do with your IM training. So 
maybe you can run us through some of the things which maybe didn't go quite so well through your IMT training. Yes. Yeah, so the the first one I wrote was it is technically supposed to be a sort of supported junior registrar year, and I think I probably wouldn't say that our trust treated us as IMT threes any differently to other registrars, which personally I liked. And I just kind of wanted to get on with it. And I didn't want to be, I kind of didn't want this sort of attitude that we, that we needed sort of a special, special treatment in a way, but it's hard because yes, you do want, you did want to be, to feel like you were going to be supported in your first sort of first, at least first few months as well, maybe, and maybe things going onwards from there could have changed. But basically in my trust, um, they did attempt to pair the IMT3s with more senior registrars. So I was paired with an ST7 um, initially and like a few of my colleagues paired with sort of ST6. is like quite senior regs, um, which was good. So the way our trust works is we have two regs in one hospital and one reg in another. Um, and you kind of flip around between the two. So sometimes you're with another reg in your trust and sometimes you're alone in the other hospital, if that makes sense. But in theory, you can always access the other registrars um, by calling, etc. So I guess in that sense, you had a more senior person at times with you. Um, but for example, during the day, they do their normal ward job, for, for example. So they, they're not there all the time. So that was something they, they did try to imp- implicate. And the other thing, implement, sorry. But but overall, I'd say that actually there wasn't any difference between between the registrars. We were all treated the same in terms of how many doctors were on at one time. And and like I say, I liked that because I didn't want to. I think at some point you do need to sort of do a bit of a baptism of fire and just go for it. And I think this boils down to some of the variability between trusts, because it's clear that the way that it's run where you work compared to where I work is is slightly different. So where I work, they tend not to have IM3s unaccompanied as the medical reg within, I don't think they did within the first six months. And the rotor was slightly different because it during the weekends, there was an IM3 who came in slightly later than the day reg and did sort of almost like a mini twilight. I think it's between sort of two o'clock to nine o'clock. So the IM3 would join for sort of an afternoon on the weekend shift. And then the IM3s would also cover either the wards or the take on weekday night shifts. And that would always be under the supervision of a, in inverted commas, senior reg. But now we're coming to sort of the, you know, springtime, coming to sort of nearly nine months worth of being an IM3. The road coordinators are starting to schedule the IM3s as you know, the reg on call on their own. And not only is it helpful for them, because obviously there are sometimes gaps which can only be filled by one person, um, but it does, like you say, it does give them a, a bit of a baptism of fire because at some point you are probably going to be the only person around. And so I think that's good overall for your development because, you know, next year they will be that senior reg and they're going to have to be that person. Okay, Jen. So one bad thing was you said supervision may be, could have been better but again this is something which is variable depending on where you work absolutely so what was your other thing which maybe wasn't quite as good as you might have expected I mean it's a new role so people don't really know what it is and and how it works and who you are 
Um, so hopefully, hopefully, as time goes on, people get more used to the idea of, of us being around. But I think because you don't have a speciality, there's lots of when people meet a medical registry, they often say, oh, what's your specialty? And you don't really have one. And so you kind of feel a little bit not, not a, like a fraud, but almost like you should have one and people expect you to have one. And you don't really have that kind of niche specialist knowledge that maybe some of the other registers have. So I think there maybe is a little bit of a, I guess it's just because you're you're more junior, isn't it? But a little bit of a slight bias against you if you're on call, as opposed to if somebody more senior was on call. But maybe that's just an age slash experience thing rather than a specific IMT3 related thing. I don't know what you found. I think I think people generally <laughs> have a have a reasonably good opinion of cardiology registrars. So People often say, oh, no, you know, what's your main specialty? It might be the ED reg or something like that, or ED, ED consultant. And that can be helpful for them because actually sometimes if there's been, you know, unstable arrhythmia patients in resus, you know, their threshold for calling me might be slightly lower, knowing that I wouldn't really mind being called because it's my specialty. I've had that a few times, which has been helpful, but I get where you're coming from because, yeah, you know, you're not a, a, a specialty reg yet, but you are capable as a, as a general medical reg and i can sort of get why that might be why that might be frustrating not to be able to say oh yes i'm a reg in this specialty and it might hark back a bit to your time as an sho because it's all like oh well i'm really interested in renal but mm-hmm. in reality you know you're not a specialty trainee so i guess on it's one of those things where on paper you're not a specialty trainee regardless of how much experience you have in that area and you know how much you love that specialty and you might have tons of experience in that specialty but it's just the on paper thing which is frustrating so i can get that entirely so jen we've talked about the two good things we've talked about a couple of not so good things and then to be honest i'm not sure where ugly fits between <laughs> between the good <laughs> and the bad because if with me ugly sort of just still means bad but yeah <laughs> <laughs> so what have you thought of as your two ugly things to do with IM training? Well, I kind of, I probably only really have one, but it comes with a, a slightly exasperating story. I went down a, a story line with this and it's more, not really more, not really about being an IMT3 and more about just being a general medical reg, but it was more about being relied upon a lot for things that you wouldn't think the medical reg would be called about. And a lot of, log- well, well, I'm sure we'll go into this later, but a lot of logistical things, a lot of random, when people don't know what to do, I think they sometimes just bleep you, <laughs> regardless of what it's about, um, which can be interesting. But my my little story was, my favourite bleep I've, I've got was I was in recess looking after a really sick patient and I got a bleep from Switch to ask me where the medical director was. And I thought, I don't know where the medical director is. I don't know how I'm supposed to know where he is. <laughs> and they'd already tried his mobile phone. He hadn't answered his mobile phone. I was like, I don't know where he is. I'm sorry. And they said, um, oh, well, um, when you find him, can you let him know that he's reserved some books in the bookshop? And they're ready for him to collect. And I was like, um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh I didn't God. quite know what to say to that with my poorly patient behind me. <laughs> <Just a bit>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I did, it did amuse me. And I don't mind getting bleeps like that because they at least are quite funny. <laughs> and I think every medical reg has got one of those stories, isn't it? And it's sort of, you know, mm. 
the old classic is like there's a pigeon on the ward call the med pigeon. everyone's had a pigeon <laughs> yeah one of the one of the ceiling pipes is leaking call the med reg there's a funny smell in this corridor <laughs> i think the thing i struggle with the most is people expect you to know seem to expect you to know every single patient and who they are and where they are and every single person staff member and who they are and where they are at all times one of the phrases which sort of grinds my gears slightly if if i do get a bleep is something like oh there's so and so on this ward uh do you know this patient and then and then you sort of think ah uh, doesn't ring any bells and then they say oh well it's written in the notes that it's discussed with you it says discussed with med med reg and then you sort of think okay well maybe but i get you know how many how many bleeps an hour and how many mm-hmm. short discussions about these patients and then you realize that actually the documentation was from the day shift or from the night shift and it actually wasn't you who was discussed at all and yeah that that's one of the things that i sort of struggle with is just they say, oh, you know, you must know this patient, you know, blah, blah, blah. But it is something that is just uh, part of the job. But I think we're going to come on to some of the advice that we would give to med regs or IM3s who are starting on an on-call rotor. So why don't we get started on that? Why don't we start talking about all of the things which you need to get nailed in as a junior med reg just starting out on the on-call rotor or as an IM3 who might also be stepping up to the plate? Okay, Jen. So we're going to start talking about unpacking some of our experiences as regs and IM3s who have been on an on-call rotor as the medical reg. We were going to start off talking about things which I would really expect all of these things to be covered in the induction to your hospital. But Jen, we've pinned down a few things which you should ideally try and find out which might be specific to your hospital. So Jen, what were some of the things which you thought would be important to find out about the reg on call role before you start your on call shifts? So, okay, so it's a bit of a list, but I think the first one is handover. So very start of your shift, where is handover? Who is supposed to come to handover? Is there a specific structure? Some hospitals have a specific checklist that they go through um, at the handover. And then very importantly, who, who who carries which bleep? How many SHOs are supposed to be with you at, at any one time? Can you find out where the rotor is so that you can check who's supposed to be with you and whether they, if they haven't turned up, why they haven't, etc. And then who is in the crash team? How many crash bleeps are there? Um, probably sort of basic things to, to know before you go in. I always look up who I'm on call with. I don't know if you do the same. Yeah, definitely. I always like to just know ahead of time to because sometimes, and this is, this is a universal truth, whether you like it or not. Sometimes you look at the rotor and you're like, awesome. We are going to yeah. smash. We're going to smash this <laughs> night shift. And then sometimes you look at it, <laughs> you look at it and you're sort of like, mm, let's get through this. <laughs> oh, dear. But yeah, couldn't agree with you more. So handover arrangements. And, and then the other thing, which is sort of interesting, um, which I, hadn't seen in any of my previous jobs is that in the crash team there is a sort of hospital at night we call them hospital at night technicians but they're sort of the the guys who go around doing the cannulas and bloods and things on patients overnight but they come to the crash calls so i found that sort of interesting because i haven't seen that in previous trusts and then also the other thing which is sort of i think important is particularly with the crash team who from the intensive care team is there 
Mm-hmm. So we so we have one person from the critical care outreach, and then usually it's a uh, an ITU SHO rather than the reg. So, Jen, what else is important to be aware of when you start at a new hospital on the uh, general medical on-call rota? I think having a really good awareness of what's available in your hospital. So really important things for medical edge is uh, stroke. Who who deals with stroke? Is it you? Is it someone else? And what options do you have available? Um, is there, presumably you have thrombolysis, but you might also have thrombectomy at certain hospitals. Um, who runs the PCI service? Is it 24 hours? Is it just within hours? And therefore, which hospital do you refer to? Similarly, for other kind of more niche specialties like neurosurgery, cardiothoracics, you might not have those on site. And then a kind of understanding of which specialty does what, essentially, which is broadly similar, I would say, across most hospitals. But there are some differences and I think still some disputed conditions, even within the hospital itself. And some hospitals have SOPs that detail, you know, are written down who does what and some don't. And just going back to one other thing that you said particularly thrombolysis and, and stroke related mm. stuff I think is really important and that varies massively between trusts I think so where I work there's a stroke nurse on 24 hours a day so they will see the majority of stroke patients and and they are pretty much happy to thrombolize but I think out of hours they would maybe involve the medical reg but they've got very good relationships with the stroke consultants so you know they're probably capable of doing that by themselves but they might just let you know as a courtesy to say you know we're going to thrombolize this patient and they're going to go to the stroke ward the other thing um which i was going to mention is in a previous trust where i've worked all thrombolysis was done in ed resus including inpatient acute strokes Mm -hmm. so so if you were so even if you were the medical reg on the wards you would then have to phone ed resus and say we need someone to thrombolize and that would be done by an a, a specific thrombolysis consultant down in, in in ed so yeah just little policies like that always really important to get uh, to get nailed on and then coming to the your second point one of the things which made me think of this as an important point was that in my current trust cholangitis is referred to gastroenterology rather than the surgeons interesting what's the logic behind that the logic is is that they're going to need an ercp anyway mm. so gastro might as well see them first i gotta say the <laughs> even the the reliability of that is still questionable because I didn't realize that was policy. So when the referral was made to me, I said, this sounds like a surgical problem, isn't it? And then I advised the ED doctor to speak to the surgeons and then the surgeons accepted the patient. So I have, <laughs> <laughs> so I've got a variety of sort of responses to that. Um, ultimately, as long as the person's, the patient's getting looked after by the correct team, it doesn't really matter. Surgeons are very good at managing cholangitis. It's not quite the same as, you know, a frail ninety-five-year-old uh, with a pubic ramus fracture being looked after by the orthopedic team. It's, uh, you know, they're capable of managing that. Mm. And I think what you don't want is it's horrible being the patient being caught in the middle of these, you know, they're mine, they're yours, they're yours, they're, yours, they're not mine, they're not mine. Like it's not very good for for them so I think at some points you do have to swallow your pride and be like actually the patient's the one suffering here for my stubbornness so maybe yeah and we'll go on to talk about that a little bit later Mm. and then the other thing which I thought would be important to talk about or to be aware of is the ambulatory service availability so obviously pretty much all hospitals will have some sort of ambulatory assessment unit or something similar and 
the mechanisms through which you can bring patients back to that vary. So I thought that is something else to just pin down, be aware of, because some places might not accept patients at the weekend, or they might, you know, not not accept patients after a specific time. So I thought that sort of thing is really important to pin down. So ambulatory care, what's possible through there, and um, how how do you arrange to to bring patients back? And often it's simple, just you know, often putting them on a list or you know, putting one of their stickers in a book or something like that. Absolutely, and I think it's important to just check who mans the ambulatory unit because we have two, and one is manned by advanced nurse pracs who are great, but they can't, for example, do LPs. Um, and some are manned by docs, and then they can do stuff like that. So just be aware that yeah. there might be a skill mix. Yeah, brilliant. And then the other thing is going back to we were talking about who's available on call i guess just knowing knowing what is available in any given trust will enable you to bring the right person so is there 24 hour endoscopy or interventional radiology maybe as well is there 24 hour primary pci and then obviously who's on call for general medicine and knowing the consultants who who are on call is obviously super important and enables you to make those appropriate referrals and then the last bit of admin that we were going to talk about is basically guideline related. And again, this is something which is hugely variable across a ton of <laughs> a ton of hospitals. Sometimes the emergency guidelines will be hidden behind 50 different pages of <laughs> intranet before you can find them. But yeah, so so Jen, what are the sorts of guidelines which you would think that you need you need to know where where they're kept and how to find them? I mean, it's helpful for me because I was an SHO at this trust as well. But I think just knowing what is there, you don't necessarily have to learn it, but just being aware in the back of your mind when you're at something, oh, there's a gu- there is a guideline for this somewhere um, is very helpful. But I think big big key ones are antibiotics. Some, some trusts use microguide, but pretty much I can't think of any trust that wouldn't have had wouldn't have antibiotic guidelines. And then there's l- usually loads of emergency guidelines. So our trust, for example, has um, know hypertensive emergency and stroke uh, gtn infusion protocols status protocols niv protocols like loads of different ones and again like i say just just being aware that they exist is almost all you need really so you can find them in a in a quick pinch yeah fantastic so let's move on to talking about some of the stuff some of the reflections that we've had over the last sort of six or nine months of being a being a medical reg and jen we've sort of collaborated on these so we've we've boiled it down to just sort of four or five points which we're going to sort of wrestle through of of things we've reflected on as our time on call so what was the first thing we were going to talk about so essentially when you get this sort of mythical label as the medical reg it definitely does come with a sort of a bit more of a open policy so people are more willing to talk to you um people in both ways so people will ask you more things and then you can ask other people more things they're usually a lot more receptive to what you have to say um which it can be feel quite nice that people actually value what you want what your input is and also people maybe are a little bit more friendly over the phone and a bit more willing to have a broader discussion with you rather than just sort of telling you telling you sort of straightforward things what to do yeah, so I completely agree. There is a, a degree of status which comes with taking on the mantle, isn't there? And people do value your advice. People ask people ask your advice more often and listen to it rather than just, I mean, basically as an SHO, I don't think really I got asked for advice by any other specialty ever. Um, 
one thing which I would say is if you're making any sort of phone call, obviously you introduce yourself as the, as the medical registrar, but I often find people change their tone slightly if you then mention that that's that's who you are and suddenly they're a lot more accommodating and able to help you and particularly helpful if you're speaking to i2 and anesthetics that's that's at least been my my experience they're often when they realize they're not speaking to an sho and they're talking to a reg they tend to be a lot more accommodating mm-hmm. which i mean unfortunately shouldn't shouldn't really be the case as long as the a person that's speaking to them knows what they want to ask and they knows the patient well but sadly it's just a fact of life isn't it yeah i think it is just literally a status thing unfortunately mm-hmm. the other thing we were talking about was that actually you do get to see much more interesting things you get to see sicker patients you get to be involved with with medicine that's more exciting um which is quite a privilege really and i don't know how you run things sam but i tend to try and see anyone that comes into recess so be involved in their care and then if there's nobody super super sick to see i might try and pick a few people that maybe could go home for example so some 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 sort of patients that need a decision being made about them essentially um which is can make your shifts quite a lot more fun than just sort of consistently clerking maybe yeah definitely and this comes on to basically our second our second point that we wanted to sort of make in this episode was that prioritization and and you're going to have lots of pulls on your time as the medical reg and so deciding how you spend your time but also how you prioritize your tasks is really important and so one of those things you just mentioned is you know if you're helping out on the take who are the patients that you should see and so yeah absolutely i would definitely say if it's possible any patients that can go home i would say that would be really helpful but i do have on night shift i have a cutoff that basically if it's after one o'clock and they're over the age of arbitrarily 60 are you in a, are you in a rush to really get this person home overnight past one o'clock is there really oh, i see what you mean yeah yeah that's fair because often they can't go home for whatever reason and it's... yeah exactly and you know past one o'clock you're you know it's going to be more difficult for them to get any transport home are you really in a rush to get them home when all it would take is allow them to get a bit of rest overnight they can phone someone in the morning you can post take with a consultant and say yep i'm pretty sure this person can go home Bob's your uncle. More often than not, they do. Well, don't and- but don't tell the um the discharge. Don't don't tell <laughs> don't tell the ED coordinator. <laughs> In this, yeah. this day and age, you might be very upset that you're not sending home someone that can go. I don't know. I think in my experience, the ED coordinators have been fine. It's more just you know if you say you know they can't get transport, they can't go. Mm. They're off, they're often fine with it. What I would say is prioritize the discharge dependent, the quick and the sick. If you're going to help out on the take. So the night shifts that I've just finished, I managed to send one or two people home before midnight, which was great. And then because you've got so many pulls on your time, seeing the ones that are quick. So I, I uh, saw a couple of inverted commas, social admissions. So literally just a quick glance, look at the blood tests, look at the chest x-ray. Is everything Okay. What's the reason for the admission? Any particular needs for that person? And then at least you've seen someone on the, on the list and it you know can take 15, 20 minutes of your time. And, and then at least they've been seen. And then as you say, any recess patient, I would say you need to clap eyes on every recess patient who comes through the take. Even if you don't formally see them because of pulls on your time elsewhere, I would always just set eyes on them. If you're not seeing them, discuss with 
the member of the team who is. That's just my general sort of routine with those. And I think that is what the kind of approach I also try to take, although it it does get difficult, as you say, when when things are busy. And then going on from our prioritization of, of your time, one of the things that we said is is that saying no to stuff is okay, but you need to do it in a nice way. And one of the quotes which I quite often use for a lot of things in life, but particularly to this, is it's either no or hell yeah. So you're either a hundred percent dialed in, you're going to see this patient. But if you have other things on, then you need to either manage remotely or try your best to give advice rather than rather than see the patient. And and you're able to offer a lot of alternatives. You know, uh, the critical care outreach team are often extremely helpful. You can offer some initial management or advice for that person to carry out before you then see the patient. And sometimes managing remotely and getting more information from the the parent team of the patient can sometimes be um, more helpful than you might be from going to see the patient yourself. So I guess linking back to that, I often think that I've got loads of really sick people that I need to see all at the same time and I can find that quite stressful. But actually I find maybe if you just go and glance at people, you can get quite a good idea quite quickly of how sick they actually are because often you get there and you realise that actually this probably could have waited a little bit longer and it wasn't as urgent as maybe it initially appeared. So I just find sometimes taking a little bit of time just to kind of glance at people before making your decision about who you prioritise is quite helpful. So, Jeb, what was the next point of um, being the general medical reg on call? What What's the next sort of thing that we thought our listeners should focus on? So we, we're going to speak about teamwork and how to utilise your team as best you can, which is a skill. And it's quite a hard skill, I think. I can, I can do the sort of friendly, approachable reg side, not so good at the kind of sterner confrontational side that sometimes assertive side shall we say that you sometimes need to have uh, but working on it yeah and so one of the things that we've put down is that you sort of links back to our last thing which is you can't be everywhere no one thing i'd say is particularly important is utilizing the skills of the team members you have around so for example i was tied up with an unwell patient and one of the um, foundation doctors on the ward was asking for help with a difficult cannula Unfortunately, I wasn't able to be there, but I knew that on the take, there was an ACCS trainee in anaesthetics. So I, you know, bleeped that doctor and said, you know, how's the take? He said, okay, it's manageable. Would you mind popping to the wards, popping in a a cannula? And, uh, you know, it happened. So utilizing the skills and experience of of the team that you're, uh, the team that you're with. And so Jen, one of the other things was uh, that you, you said is that if you haven't heard from someone in a while, it doesn't necessarily mean that everything's going okay. Yes, agree. I, I think people are all different and, and sometimes it, it does mean everything's fine. But I definitely have had uh, some people that are maybe maybe they're a bit reluctant to bleep me or reluctant to ask for help. I don't know if it's a sort of pride thing or they're just so overwhelmed with everything that they kind of forget that there's other options. But I have had scenarios where it's kind of got very late in the day and then people have sort of said, oh, I've got I've got all of this stuff and I haven't done any of it. And it was just that they just didn't let us know earlier and we could have helped them earlier. So I've always tried to proactively contact my members of the team 
you know, a few hours into the shift just to see how everything's going. And often the answer is fine. I'm okay. Don't worry about it. And that's great. But sometimes that kind of prompts them to be like, oh, actually, there is something that I'd like to ask you. Or can we, I've got a few, collected a few things and can we ask about them? So everyone's different. Some people are really willing to ring you. Some people are very reluctant for whatever reason. Um, And just showing them that you are there if they need you, then I think that can really help. Yeah, definitely. And I always think if you, if you don't get bleeped at all, it either means things are going completely fine or they are just so swamped with work that they, they haven't got time to contact you. So yeah, even just a little bleep just to see how they're doing. The next thing on our list is, <laughs> I've, I've written, reluctantly accepting referrals is inevitable, but not obligatory. <laughs> yeah. So basically, I think this loops around to often referrals from other specialties in the hospital but also from GPs or and sometimes paramedics as well as well, Jen. So what's your experience been like with with this and sort of the reluctant acceptance of some referrals? On the whole, I think most referrals are very valid, don't have any problems. I think it can be difficult because sometimes there's a lot of pressure to see people or sometimes to not see people. I've had the opposite from sort of community people saying oh I've seen this patient and you know they have all of this stuff but I don't think they need to come to hospital do you agree and that's quite difficult as well it's a sort of negative referral almost I think if you really don't think it's a medical issue then you do have to stand your ground but again I always go back to my point earlier the patient's at the centre of this and if you refusing or not wanting to see them might impact their care then I kind of often do relent a little bit and yeah. I'm much more willing to see people if I don't think if I just saw them it might make them go home quicker or it might provide better you know a more prompt decision or something like that than I will yeah I had one over this set of night shifts which was essentially a referral from the general surgical team where the the transient surgical problem had been had been fixed and in this case it turned out to be a reducible hernia had come in with some pain from a hernia. The patient wasn't able to reduce it. They've reduced it, but they're concerned about the social situation. And then it sort of becomes almost like a frailty admission. Whilst it's a reluctant referral, if the surgical, I, I feel like if the surgical problem has been fixed, the surgical team are going to offer them very little. And actually what they, my, <laughs> my go-to phrase is they need a good old CGA. They need a good comprehensive geriatric assessment, don't they? <laughs> I do agree with you. I might say something controversial now. <laughs> I think I think I think fair enough if the surgical problem has been fixed and now they've got a medical problem like a pneumonia or a delirium or something. No problems with that. But I think if it's a purely social thing that they need physio and occupational therapy for, I don't feel like that necessarily is a medical problem. And maybe they should stay under the team that they know. Is that too controversial? I don't think it's controversial, but also I do sometimes think that these patients would be better looked after by a geriatrician than a general surgeon. That's what I reckon. Yeah, you probably are right. I guess and that is the ultimate question, isn't it? Who who would actually provide better care for this patient? Yeah. And without blowing our own trumpets, I'd like to think that often that is that is us. But you do have to be careful as well, because <laughs> the regarding this one referral that I got, the surgical registrar, lovely. She was absolutely lovely. But they were playing uh, like sort of hamming it up a little bit by saying, well, you know, I think they just get neglected on a, on a surgical ward. 
and whilst I get what she's trying to say, I can't be like, I can't agree and be like, yes, your ward care is dreadful. <laughs> <laughs> and also it shouldn't be dreadful. This is the thing. They should be able to offer kind of basic, basic care to, to these sorts of patients. But anyway, it, it shouldn't. that's probably but, a, t- a topic. But, but realistically, <laughs> I don't mind reluctantly accepting those referrals. The next thing we wanted to talk about was GP referrals. And I actually really enjoy GP referrals. I think they're some of my favorite phone calls because often they're really experienced doctors. You know, the GP, the age of GPs is, is going up and we need more. So if you're listening and you're in two minds about medicine, go and be a, please be a GP. Cause I think they're some of the best doctors around. And a lot of the phone calls that I get are actually trying to keep patients out of hospital and they just want to check a plan with you. And if it's appropriate, and I have to say my experience of GP referrals is, is, is that the standard of them is very high and often the plan is appropriate without any real input from me. So Jen, what's your experience of GP referrals? I'd actually agree with that. I, I very rarely get a GP referral and think, if if ever, I can't even think of an example where I think, why why have they called me? It's always, you know, some, something sensible that needs something more urgent doing than they can do in their, you know, practice. And it's often a good chance to send people to other places like ambulatory care for sort of quicker decision-making and a quicker access to scans, et cetera, than they would get in the community. So you can really make a big difference to patients with this set of referrals as well, I think. Yeah, definitely. And this sort of also loops back around to seeing what's available in your trust. So the other team, which we didn't really mention at the start, is is something like acute care at home, which is what it's called here. But I don't know, what's it called where you are? You know, when people go, go and can provide uh, intravenous therapy Okay, rapid response. Yeah. So knowing what's available in the community from that respect is also is also sort of helpful as well. Okay. And then arrest calls. This was our next bullet point. And I think this is probably the thing which most new registrars are most anxious about. Yes. And I actually think they're probably some of the most interesting medicine and the time where you really feel like you're a medical registrar in that sense. They can be really, it sounds awful to say that they're enjoyable, but but from a professional standpoint, I've, I do find them really interesting and, and a great part of what I do day to day. I don't know about you. Yeah, I think, I think it's a, a great opportunity for development, for sure. Mm-hmm. And every arrest, you'll, you'll get learning points out of it. So yeah, 100%. And so the other thing for arrests, which I always think is so important, obviously, we, we spoke at the start about clarifying who's in the team but also clarifying who's actually done ALS and allocating roles at the start, I think is is super important. And that will depend on how many members of the team there are. And then I guess I would always suggest, I would say once every six months, probably just have a good recap of your ALS, just mm-hmm. have a quick flick through the book, make sure you're up to date with the algorithm, et cetera. And one thing I found is that if it's a you know significant arrest, maybe it's quite long or you don't get a successful resuscitation, a debrief afterwards is is really valuable. And actually the members of the team, the members of the team in my experience have been really grateful just to be able to talk that through, especially the the nurses on the ward where maybe they weren't expecting a patient to arrest. Mm-hmm. I've often found they're very grateful to have a, have a debrief. Absolutely. And I've been to some really good debriefs not that I've led but when I was an SHO that I think made a really big difference to people because often people have a lot of guilt around these things especially the nurses if they were just 
looking after them or just taking them to the toilet or something and actually kind of dispelling myths that they were in in any way caused or did anything is is really helpful i think running an arrest is all about running people isn't it it's about organizing them and, and more about your communication than anything else yeah and i think i'm also trying to plan an episode in the near future as well on on more detail on on running an arrest so yeah keep your eyes out for that so jen this next point was yours so why don't you take the lead on this one what was our next bullet point it was keeping a logbook which i find immensely helpful i think lots of people do this anyway uh, often for things like procedures um projects audits all that sort of thing for their portfolios but I also, it, it seems a bit anal, but I write down every patient that I clock and then any patient that I get referred on the wards. And then I do try very hard to go back and look at what happened to them all because it's just such good learning because you often see them straight at the beginning and you never you never know what happens to them really. And it's now everything's online and my trust is where I can see exactly what people thought initially and then what it actually ended up being and and if they did you know didn't survive the admission why and what happened etc etc I just find that really invaluable for my learning as well yeah definitely obviously cardiology we have logbooks for pretty much everything I I would say I don't do it for every patient um (laughs) but I do do it for particularly interesting ones or, you know, ones where I'm not 100% sure what, you know, what's been going on, or maybe someone who's been pretty sick and ends up going to intensive care. I, I do try and follow those ones up, or particularly interesting cases. Yeah. So, yeah, keep a logbook, clinics, procedures, interesting patients. And then lastly, this is pretty much the last one. And I have to say, I think it's the most important one, particularly during on calls, which is look after yourself first, mm-hmm. because everyone's going to be relying on you to do as good a job as you can. And if you can't look after yourself, you're not going to be able to do your job properly. Agree. As you you have pointed out before, there's all there, and we have mentioned is there is usually time. There's nearly always time to grab a quick drink, to get a quick snack, to go to the loo, and it's so important to do those things when you think about them because you know you could potentially get an arrest call or something, and then you'll be in a situation where you've you physically cannot do all of those things. So I think when the opportunity strikes, always go and help yourself. Yeah, definitely. And and part of this, I think, is having insight into your own behaviours and your own emotions and having that self-awareness. Because i got to say, when I get hangry, I get really hangry. Mm. And just taking an example from this last, last set of night shifts, I had been really busy on the wards, but came back to ED to just check how the take had been going. Sat down next to the SHO and pretty much immediately uh, an ED nurse came up to me on the other side and started telling me about something which, in my opinion, was quite non-urgent. And I could just feel myself getting more irritable because I was hangry. The nurses are very understanding. So I just said, I'm really sorry. It's actually three in the morning and I haven't had anything to eat since about 8.30. So if it's really not urgent, can I ask you to either towards my SHO, who's perfectly capable of managing it, because I really need something to eat and drink. I've never had anybody be cross at me saying that before. Most people are like, oh, I'm so sorry. And then let you get on and do it. Yeah, so. yeah. And then what, what you do realise is that people want you to be able to do your job well. And that is, that's important for you to be able to function. I mean, <laughs> nurses have very um, regimented breaks and they know the importance of their breaks and they're always 
huge advocates for each other getting their breaks. So when you say you need a break, I've never had anybody have any qualms about that at all. And I'm a better person after lunch, Sam. <laughs> Okay, guys, so we're nearly at the end of the episode. So we're just going to summarize our thoughts on our reflections of being the MedReg on call. So the first thing we said was figure out your hospital specific things, handover arrangements, what's available at your hospital in the way of thrombolysis, primary PCI, advanced specialties such as neurosurgery, cardiothoracics, ambulatory service. How do we bring patients back? to the ambulatory service and where can we find the most appropriate useful guidelines being the medical reg does also have some perks including that people value your advice a bit more it's a bit easier to talk to other people and you do actually get to see a lot more interesting and varied medicine and then our third one was prioritization is a key skill to hone so making sure that you're making the best use of your time. Saying no is okay. You can advise other teams of plans over the phone, offer alternatives. Outreach team or critical care outreach team can be hugely helpful. And giving some initial management or advice can be just as helpful and might mean you don't need to see the patient until you have more information. Number four was about teamwork. So get to know your team, get to know their roles, what skills they have that you might not have. And make sure you check up on your team because lack of communication might not mean all is fine. And the next one was reluctantly accepting referrals is inevitable, but not obligatory. Sometimes we do have to just accept these referrals that they, that these patients might be better looked after by a medical team than another specialty. And valuing the experience of our various colleagues, regardless of specialty, but particularly in my experience anyway, GP referrals often I have found to be extremely well thought out and considered. The next point is arrest calls. So make sure you allocate everybody a role, make sure everyone's happy with that role and comfortable with it and make sure you're happy with your ALS if you haven't done a course in a little while. Next one was keeping a logbook of clinics, procedures or interesting patients to follow up. This can all be helpful later on and you can upload upload it to your e-portfolio. You can reflect on these cases in your e-portfolio and just is a, is a great thing to do for your ongoing uh, CPD. And last but certainly not least, we spoke about looking after yourself, making sure you have something to eat, have a wee, have a drink and understanding when those things might be impacting on your ability to do the job. Well, that is pretty much the end of today's show. And we have been delighted to be joined yet again by Dr. Jenny Goff. I am three and soon to be. What's next in the pipeline for you, Jen? What are you going on to? I'm actually starting a cardiology fellow job in my current hospital for a year. And then during that year, I will hopefully apply for an ST number in cardiology. Fantastic. And so, Jen, it's been an absolute delight to have you on the show once again, getting your hat trick appearance. And hopefully, we'll get you back on at some point in future. Maybe when you get your cardiology number, or maybe we can talk about mm. cardiology applications in a in a future episode. Ooh, sounds scary. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for having me again. I've really enjoyed it, and That's much great. appreciated. That's great. It's always a pleasure to have you. And listeners, that is pretty much the end of another show here on the Pre Paces Podcast. 
Don't forget to like, follow, subscribe, or leave a five-star review to the show wherever you get your podcasts. We always love to hear from you guys wherever you're listening in the world. So give us a shout on our Twitter at Prepaces Podcast or on the website. That's prepacespodcast.com. If you really love the show and you want to go above and beyond, you can chuck us a few quid over on buymeacoffee.com slash prepacespodcast. But for now, we are just about out of time for today's show. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Pre-Paces Podcast.